Elizabeth Elliot returned with her three-year-old daughter to a remote tribe in the jungles of Ecuador to live with and to minister to a group of people who two years before had killed her husband and four of his friends. What's the explanation for that? A little closer to home and less dramatically, uh, I knew a young man who gave up his home, uh, sold his vehicle, got out of debt so he could quit his job and live and minister among the homeless here in Charleston. What's the explanation for that? Sometimes I steer away from dramatic stories because we compare our lives to those, but nevertheless, they're true stories. What's the explanation for your life? How do you explain your life? Because if you are truly living uh, an obedient life as a believer in Christ, then your life begs, your life demands an explanation. Your life, if you are living, living a life of obedience, should cause people to scratch their heads and ask, why? Why do you live that way? Why do you do those things? Why, why do you not live this way? Why do you not do those things? If your life and my life does not require some sort of explanation, and if that explanation is not the gospel, then we are not living the life of obedience that we are called to live. Mystery is part of the life of a believer. Scripture says that it's a great mystery. Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in me. But it is nevertheless a mystery. And it's a mystery that should take some explanation. The gospel calls us to radical behavior. And so again, if our lives don't require some explanation, we are not living the life of obedience that the spirit of Jesus and the, and the gospel of Jesus empowers us to live. But think conversely of what our obedience can do. Think of what your obedience to the gospel can mean for your own life. Think of what your obedience to the gospel can mean for your family, for this church. Think of what it can mean for this community in which God has placed us. The transformation that can take place because you and I seek to and want to obey God. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we return once again this week uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the, the word of the living God. We're going to pick up in verse 34. When the Lord heard what you said, and that was their grumbling and complaining, he was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephthunah. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from evil, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight. Because I will not be with you, you will be defeated by your enemies. 
And so I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. And as has been prayed, we thank you, Spirit of God, for your presence with us. And we pray now that you would be our teacher, uh, that you would bring the transformation in our lives that we need, that you would bring the obedience to our lives that we must have. We ask that you would do us this in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. May be seated. Last week, we talked about the route to the Red Sea that we read about here in verse 40. That's the path upon which God set his people. And for them, it was not a path forward. It was a path backward. It was across a road that they had already traveled. And this route, this path, was for the people of Israel a road of discipline. Because as they traveled this path the first time, they missed the lessons from God along the way that would have allowed them to move forward, to forward into the future, a future of blessing for them, a future of blessing for the nations around them. Verses 29 through 32, if you look there, they highlight the lessons that God's people had not learned. They had not yet learned that God always goes before them. Even though he guided them every day with a pillar of fire and a cloud, they had not yet learned that lesson. They had not yet learned that God was on their side, that God fights for his people. God had already delivered them from slavery. God would continue in the future to deliver them from any slavery that they encountered. He would fight for them. They missed that. They had not yet learned that God cares for them and provides for them. In that vast and dreadful desert, the place that they had been, the place that they were now returning to, God cared for them. He carried them, them, and not just some of the way, but verse 31 says that he carried them all the way. Never left them, never dropped them. Carried them all the way to the promised land. They had not yet learned that God had a place for them. That God searched out just the right place that he wanted them to be. And so instead, they sent spies to search out that place for them. And so when you don't know that God is on your side, when you don't know that God cares for you, when you don't know that God provides for you, when you don't know that God carries you, when you don't know that God fights for you, when you don't know that God has a place for you, when you don't know that God goes down the path that you're headed before you ever go there yourself, then your life needs no explanation at all. Because when you haven't learned those truths about God, you can't obey Him. When He requires something of you, especially if He requires something bigger than you are, especially if He asks you to do something that requires more than you think you have, your life needs no explanation. When you haven't learned these lessons, you don't trust God with your life, with your future. And so you're led along by fear. Fear has you on its leash. 
instead of being leased to faith. Letting it lead you to places you may never have thought or never wanted to go in your life. You don't go there and so your life needs no explanation. You don't have to explain to anyone while you ran away from a battle with giants. Anyone would do that. That needs no explanation. You don't have to explain to anyone why you grumble and complain, God bring us up in this desert, man of man of dust. No. no. That needs no explanation because we all do it. We're just doing what people do who don't know God or don't have them in his life. And so because the people did not learn the lessons of the desert the first time, because they rebelled against God, because they did not obey him, because their life required no explanation, God disciplined them so that they would obey him from the heart. That kind of radical heart obedience then would set people to talking, asking for explanations. How did you do it? How did you fight? How did you defeat the giants? Why did you do it? And guess who gets the glory for that answer every single time? God does. So until his people learned obedience, until that obedience was built solidly on the foundation of faith and trust, they could not move forward. The only way they could move was backward. They would be stuck. They may even self-destruct, and that's not what God has for his people. He doesn't want us to self-destruct. He doesn't want us, his people, you and me, to be stuck in faithless disobedience. Unable to do the life-changing, family-changing, city-changing, world-changing acts to which he calls us, his people, And so he disciplines his people until there is obedience from them that comes from their heart. That's what God is after. For them, that's what God is after from you and me, obedience from our heart. Flip over to chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy. Because chapter 8 is a commentary on this route to the Red Sea discipline. This journey back to the desert upon which God set his people. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. Moses is speaking and he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. There's obedience. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And so God disciplined his people so that they would obey him. That's the end goal of God's discipline. That's the end goal of God's punishment. It is obedience to bring people to repentance And as we saw last week, repentance is a complete turning around. And for the people of Israel, it meant turning their backs on faithless, trustless disobedience, turning their back on that and turning toward a life lived in faith and trust and obedience. Why is obedience so important to God? Why does God require obedience of us, his people? Is it because he's some kind of egomaniac? You know, he demands that we obey him just because he can. Well, you could answer yes. If you're demanding your child not stick a knife in an electrical outlet, 
Or if you're demanding your child not play in a busy street, if that makes you an egomaniac that just wants to be obeyed for the sake of obedience, then yes, but that's not what it makes you, is it? It makes you a parent who loves your child immensely. It makes you a parent who knows a lot more than your child knows about the world and how to function in it. It means you know a lot more than your child about how to preserve life and how to end life very quickly. In the same way, God, the creator of the universe, knows the best way for us to function in this world that he has created for us to live in. And so he asks us to obey him so we can function in the best possible way. We navigate, you and I navigate our way safely through this world only, only as we obey every word from the mouth of the Lord, our captain and our guide obedience. It's what God is always after. Because a life lived in obedience to God requires explanation. And guess who gets the glory for that? God. His promises, His covenants, His blessings are conditioned by obedience. Always. You will be blessed, God says, if. That's God's way. And we can see it from the beginning of history in the Garden of Eden. God made a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. And that promise that God made to them was uh, contingent on their perfect obedience. As long as the two of them enjoyed the garden to its fullest extent, the beauty of it, the streams of it, the flowers in the garden, the vegetation, all those animals, cute as they were, none of which they were afraid of, As long as they enjoyed that and did not eat from the one tree, only one tree, that God commanded them not to eat, then all would have been well. They would have lived in the garden. A perfect life, a sinless life was theirs forever based on their obedience to God. God's covenants are always conditional. If you obey me, God says, then I will. But Adam and Eve did not obey. Then we move forward. God, by his own initiative, entered into a covenant agreement with Abraham. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. He just chose Abraham, the father of this nation that now stands before Moses. And he entered into a covenant relationship with them. And this is how he did it. He told Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham had obeyed, and he brought all those animals, and he split all those animals, except the the bird, from head to toe right down the middle. And then Abraham arranged those parts opposite each other. And then darkness came. And Abraham saw a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, and it passed between those animal parts that he had divided. And God spoke to him in that moment and said, to your descendants, I give this land. See, this was the way they made covenants in the ancient Middle East. The one making the covenant, the one making the promise, would pass through the parts of those animals, signifying this. If I fail to do everything I promise that I will do for you, then you may do to me what was done to these animals. If I lie, if I do not fulfill my promise, you can split me down the middle. And so it's God of his own free will that enters into this covenant with Abraham. No one forced him to do it. He chose to do it, but... He required something of Abraham. This is in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep 
my covenant. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between you and me for the generations to come. See, God requires obedience to the covenant. When Moses arrives with the people at Mount Sinai for the first time, just before God gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 19, God says this, Now if you obey, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So you see that if, then, God says, if you obey, then I will. Jesus obeyed. He said, not one jot, not one tittle of the law would pass away. He said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said, great is the kingdom, and great in the kingdom of heaven are those who keep the law of God. And so obedience was important to Jesus. And because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, he validated the law. He demonstrated that obedience is of utmost importance because he did it in his own life. The law had to be perfectly obeyed and Jesus was the only one who could do that. And so he did for us, for you and for me, perfectly what you and I can't do. And because he did it, he removed the requirement of perfect obedience as the prerequisite for salvation. If Jesus had not obeyed perfectly, then he could have not have been the perfect, spotless sacrifice for sin. So listen, Jesus did not take obedience lightly. In his humanity, he must have been conscious with every temptation that came his way, and temptations came his way. He must have been conscious of what hung in the balance. What hung in the balance if he gave in to temptation, if he did not perfectly obey the Father? And in a very real sense, you and I, all of us, we were there with Jesus when he was being tempted. Just take one example. When Jesus was in the desert... And when he had gone without food for 40 days, and when he was being tempted by Satan too, and certainly could have turned the stones into bread to fill his empty stomach, he didn't do it because he wanted to obey his father, because he knew that his father had sent him to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and only the one who was perfectly obedient could be that atoning sacrifice. And so he obeyed. And he withstood temptation because he wanted you and me to be saved. Now that's the truth. He didn't indulge himself in disobedience because he knew what that would mean for you and for me. If he did, it would mean that we would be lost and we would be without hope in this world. That's the reality of it. So surely Jesus knew and carried the weight of obedience. Even our entering into the new covenant with God is conditional. It's conditional. Now, at this point, the mere mention of the word conditional causes the radar that's built uh, inside every five-point Calvinist to start going off. Beep, 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 
the theological interloper on the premises. <laughs> theological interloper on the premises. Because we all know, as good five-point Calvinists, what the U in the tulip means. And it means unconditional election. So don't talk to me about conditional. It's unconditional election. And it's true. Our salvation is not conditioned on anything but the free grace of God. Nothing we have done, nothing we ever will do in the future is the basis for God's saving us. We don't deserve salvation. He just gives it to us of his grace. But that salvation is conditioned by faith. By faith, by faith, you and I enter into the grace of God. Both Romans chapter 1 verse 5 and and chapter 16 verse 26 contain a little phrase. It's called the obedience of faith. And many different explanations are given for this little phrase. But if we'll set aside our theological systems and our desire to defend those and just let the phrase speak for itself, it seems simple to me. It seems this simple to me. Jesus calls people to believe in him. Believe in me. Thus, whenever anyone believes in him and puts their faith in him, that person is obeying Jesus, right? Saving faith is an act of obedience. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, belief. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you and I are offered no hope of salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is conditioned by our faith, the obedience of faith. If we do not believe, we will not be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. The obedience of faith. Obedience is important. And I've been spending a long time making a case for obedience because of how important it is. Obedience has always been a requirement for those entering into a covenant relationship with God. And I don't believe I've done the wrong thing in making this case for obedience. We need to hear how important obedience is. We do. We need to hear how important obedience is in our lives. Because in places like Redeemer that emphasize the grace of God, and we do emphasize the grace of God because it is so amazing, We run the risk of pitting grace and obedience against each other. We tend to live like you can't have both, when in fact we must have both. We use grace as a scapegoat for disobedience. Well, God's gracious. God's gracious. Well, yeah, He is. But that doesn't mean that you and I don't have to obey. And grace and obedience are not mutually exclusive. They go together. The one enables the other. The grace of God is what allows you and me to live a life of obedience. Turn to Titus 2 in the New Testament. If you don't mind, we, we turn here often because to me it's the classic passage of how grace and obedience must go together. Get us even the, the purpose of grace. Titus 2 in the New Testament Verse 11, it says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. See, grace is our instructor. It teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here's obedience. The grace of God has appeared to us, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and enabling us to live a life of obedience. That's why God gives us his grace. God sent his people back into the desert to learn obedience because that's what life with God is. It is a life of obedience. Famous philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche talked about a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And man, Christians picked up on that quote immediately because it's such a great quote. Eugene Peterson, you may know him as the man who translated the version of the Bible called The Message. Maybe you have it. He wrote a book. And the name of the book is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. I want to read to you a little bit uh, from that book. Peterson says that our attention spans, that's ours, yours and mine, have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world, but there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. He goes on to write, One aspect of the world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. And that's us, isn't it? Get her done. If it's not an immediate success, forget it. Because all of us have this end in sight mentality. It seems to us that most things have an end point. One more day, one more week, one more month, one more year, but not too long, and then it comes to an end. School ends, we move on. A job ends, we move on. A relationship ends, we move on. We tend to look toward the point of termination. When will this all be over? Even good things in our lives, because we all know that all good things must come to an end. But when can you and I Stop obeying Christ. When? When can you and I stop obeying Christ? See, there is no end to our obedience. There is no end to our obedience. There is no end in sight until our deaths. Even when our obedience is long. Even when our obedience is not exciting. We once had someone here at Redeemer who was concerned and, and talked to me, and their concern was that there was no longer any buzz about Redeemer. You know, there was buzz about Redeemer when we moved downtown a few years ago because we were the new church in town, and so there was a lot of a buzz about Redeemer. 
But I told this person, you know, that that, that buzz has to settle into to weekly, and then monthly, and then yearly, and then decadely, even centurily, obedience, faithfully living out the gospel. And that obedience, it may not have a lot of buzz about it. It may not have a lot of glitz about it. But why shouldn't it? Why should it? Obedience, our obedience may not receive a lot of attention. And if it does, maybe we ought to question our motives. Jesus warned his followers, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I'll tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our long obedience as individuals, our long obedience as a church in the same direction may not cause a lot of buzz, but it will make a difference. It may not attract a lot of people who are looking for the coolest church in town, but you know what? Thankfully, the church does not exist on its ability to create and sustain buzz. Do you know that that's the truth? That's not what sustains us. A healthy church exists on the quality of its members. A healthy church exists and grows based on the quality of its members. Members whose lives need a quiet, sometimes even an isolated explanation for why. A quiet explanation at school, at work, at play, even in church. You need an explanation for the Holy Spirit of God-empowered obedience. And often the people who benefit the most from our obedience are the people who are least able to make a, a big buzz and a big stir about it. A healthy church exists on its members' commitment to the church. Listen to me. The church. The church. This beautiful community that God has created, that He has established in places all around the world, the church where His people work together and play together and laugh together and cry together and experience all areas of life together, not just one or that, no, but all of life we live together. It's members obeying together in all of life. That's what sustains the church. That's what causes the church to grow. That's what causes the gospel to go out. So take away the buzz. Take away the glitz. Take away the attention. When the only benefit of obedience is obedience, how long are you in it for? How up for a long obedience in the same direction are you? Since we know heaven, heaven, that's the direction we are obeying toward. Our obedience on earth will be worth it. And so I'm going to close right now with this passage. And this passage is for our encouragement to live live, radical lives of obedience. And this passage is for uh, encouragement to live lives that demand 
an explanation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you just listen as I read. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now that you would bless us, your people, with the gift of obedience. Father, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would turn us into people who radically desire to live radical lives of obedience toward you. That, that will take on different shape, different form for all of our lives. But Lord, we must commit ourselves to living a life of obedience before you. Lord, we must put aside a life of excuse, excusing ourselves, coming up with reasons for why we don't obey. We need to set those aside, Lord, and we need to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We need to fix our eyes on what is unseen, the glory and the riches of heaven. Lord, we need to press on in this world toward a long obedience in the same direction, that same direction, making our way toward home, making our way toward you. And Father, we pray that as we faithfully obey you, that transformation will come, that will come in our own lives, that we'll bring a transformation, Lord, to this community in which you have placed us, that they'll be transformed by the power of the gospel as we obediently get that gospel out. And so as you did for our salvation, we pray now again that you would do in us and through us what we're not able to do on our own, what we're able to do only with your power and your spirit. And that truly is to move out into the world, to to wage war uh, against sin, to to wage war against our enemy with the gospel of truth. Do this in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.